Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and we have been anticipating this. I have been anticipating this for quite a while. This is our hundredth episode, and so I'm I'm very very excited for you to join us. And I'm even more excited because I've picked out some of my very favorite guests, and six of them are here with us today. And I wanted to tell you who they are. We have Travail Lynch from Chicago. And some of these you're not going to recognize from the podcast because they have not aired yet. So, um, so that keep that in mind. I have Tiffany Yecki Brooks from Oklahoma, Steve Besson from New York, or is it um, Montreal? Born and raised in Montreal, living in the Boston area now. Boston. Well, I was off. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Jan Canty, who lives in the Pacific Northwest, Sean Wheeler, who is in Colorado, and Sandy Phillips Kirkham, who is in Cincinnati, Ohio. So welcome all. I'm so happy that you're here. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Yes, Hi. thank you so thank much you. for having us. So super well, special. <laughs> yeah, it's it's exciting. It's exciting for me. I've been looking forward to it. So um, I'm just going to kind of go down the line. And if you would give me just kind of an abbreviated um, version of your story on what brought you to wanting to be on post-traumatic faith. So let's start with Sandy. Sandy, tell us a little bit about um, your story and what, what brought you to, to me. Um, I was sexually abused by my youth pastor at the age of 16. Um, I was very active in the church. I sang in the choir, taught Sunday school. It was a place that I just loved. And we hired a new youth pastor and he was very charismatic. And within a very short time of arriving at the church, he began sexually abusing me. Um, and it started very subtly with a quick kiss that he kind of dismissed. And I actually dismissed because I couldn't believe that my pastor would he shouldn't be doing. So I just thought this was his way of, you know, showing appreciation and it would eventually escalate to um, sexual intercourse. He was 30 years old and he was married with two children. Um, he was eventually promoted to the senior minister. This was not his first um, incident of sexual abuse. He had had um, an incident in his prior church. The abuse went on for five years. And then once the relationship ended, I spent 27 years keeping it a secret uh, and fearful that someone would find out. And I, I eventually was kicked out of the church because of my behavior. He was moved to the next church. And so I lived with this guilt and shame of something that I had done for 27 years. So my husband didn't know, my friends didn't know. And then I had a trigger factor, a major trigger factor that just pushed me to the edge that forced me to deal with my past. And, um, and then I spent a journey of healing and, looking for ways to let go of the guilt and the shame. And so um, I eventually wrote a book. And when I found your podcast, um, it resonated with me because it is post-traumatic. You know, it is what we live with. Mm -hmm. after. And so 
that's why uh, I found your podcast to be a venue I knew would be helpful to others hearing my story. Thank you. You know, I want to point out something that I remember so vividly from your story was that the fact uh, that you were kicked out of the church because of poor behavior, he was asked to leave and was given a going away party. Yes. There was a vote to try to keep him. Um, They secured another position for him in a town, another uh, state. And once again, within a short time, sexual misconduct again. Um, I did confront him 27 years later, and he said he'd been identified as a sexual addict, but he was still a minister, and his current church board felt that he was safe and that my story because it had happened so long ago. Um, and so he still remains in ministry. I think he's semi-retired now, but he's in good standing. So nothing really changed. I made every effort to um, try to get him removed and I hit a brick wall every time. And it was not only that you hit a brick wall, it was, it was people, it was men that were saying, I think you need to let this go. It's been long enough. I think I think you need to just, you know, not be so angry because time, enough time has passed. And and, you know, he's had a really great track record since then. So let's not let's not malign his character anymore. And that I mean, just the stink of that just absolutely blew me away. Actually told that if I were to continue to try and pursue removing him, the guilt of ruining a church would overwhelm me and it would be worse for me. And I need to let it go because I would ruin this church if I uh, exposed him. So, yeah. you know, it's a victim silent, um, putting the guilt and shame back on me. But how dare I try to ruin this man's reputation when in reality it was his own actions that ruined his reputation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sandy has a book called may I pray upon you P R E Y. It is excellent. I read it cover to cover. Um, well, well worth the read and um, Oh, there it is. (laughs) So it's very, a very, very good book. So um, thank you, Sandy. And I, and I applaud your bravery at telling your story because I think, Obviously, we know that abuses within the church um, are not have not ended. And as you and I were just talking earlier, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention is dealing with hundreds of cases and right now and that have been covered up. And so I think um, for you not to stay silent is so important. So thank you, Sean. Let me unmute myself. Yeah. So Sean um, really made a huge impact on me, just um, his, his childhood story and then um, what he's, what he's doing now. So share with us a little bit, Sean. Yeah, I um, was uh, groomed very young, also sec- also sexually abused, but um, I was trafficked from about age five to age 10, <laughs> um, moved away from that town. But uh, by that point, I had been taught that, uh, you know, that's what people got to do to me. And so people continued to find me. And uh, the last time I got gotten, is what I say, was uh, I was 19 at my first duty station in the military. And when I was about five or six, I had been told that, um, you know, when you turn 18, 19, 20, you should probably just die because you won't be worth anything anymore. And I was scared to death approaching age 20. I made it past that. And that's when I drew the line in the sand and said, you know, 
never again. But um, didn't mean I didn't continue to live, you know, in a bad sort of illusion world as well, because I understand the shame and guilt part I add to it, fears also, because I'd been taught, grew up and going to church, but I'd been taught about, you know, five to six that um, now you're too cor- corrupt for God to wander, love you. Yeah. Um, and you believe that when you're a little kid. Uh, around the age of seven, I was used in, um, I still call it child pornography, um, even though the terms have changed, I really don't care. That's to me what it was uh, with another boy, a girl, two men and one uh, adult woman as well. Um, I tell people, you know, by the time I was nine, I knew how to drink. I knew how to smoke. I knew every word in the book. I knew all about porn and, and I just assumed that was normal. Um, and, and let me, let me ask you real quick. Wasn't it your parents that trafficked you firstly? No. In fact, they had no clue. My family had okay. no clue. It was, it was a, um, business associate, I think, or somebody that knew my father in the business community okay, ran, ran the network. Yeah, no worries. Um, I too went silent. Um, and I finally uh, got to a place, got married, got to a place where my wife said, you need to go to counseling and deal with this and needs to be a Christian counselor. And uh, I did, went through an incredible process. Um, started speaking publicly in 2014. Today, I run Starfish Ministries in Colorado, and I'm a consultant to a number of um, groups nationally and internationally. And um, because of a few interviews and things, over 6 million people worldwide now have heard my story. Um, And it's just been, it's a, I found my purpose, I tell people. This is it. And what you know, I some of the comments I I heard um, on the other side, sort of from what happened to Sandy was I got, you know, it was often the women in the church who attacked me. It's like with, well, you were a boy, why didn't you just run away? And it's not as bad for boys, and and because they actually like it, and they're always the predator anyway, and all these kind of things, and. And I point out to them, probably between 30 and 35% of the people who bought me as a preteen were women. So people who want to pretend that they're never predators are just not um, really keyed into the reality of what's happening to, to millions of boys. Um, but in this, I found my purpose. I actually uh, do a prison ministry now as well. And um, I work with convicted sex offenders, believe it or not. Um and I've had people in four different law enforcement agencies tell me that when I come in and speak to a group, whether it's in a halfway house or situation or, you know, still in jail, they have found that those people in those groups, typically the reoffending rate drops by over 90%. Wow. Because we offer a hope, a message of hope and forgiveness. I have forgiven those people. Uh, more importantly, I've forgiven myself because uh, I blame me. And, um, yeah, so if I needed a secular reason to do it, that would be it. But, uh, you know, I forgive because God forgives me and there's, 
a lot that I need that for too. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think, I think Sean, one of the things that struck me about your story is what you just highlighted was the fact that we think about um, trafficking of women and children and, and, you know, and, and particularly females, we don't hear a lot about the trafficking of young males. And so it really struck me um, some of the statistics you shared um, that were, that were um, particularly shocking. Uh, before I forget here, I just wanted to mention that um, that uh, Sandy's episode um, episode uh, aired this year on June 5th. And um, Sean, yours actually aired on um, September 10th. So if you go to those episodes, mm. um, Sean was number 43 and Sandy was number 29. So um, so it was it was. Uh, it was already already aired so you can you can listen in so um so tiffany share with us a little bit i loved our interview and it looks like walker just joined us i can't i'm glad that she did because um i'm i'm anxious for you to hear her story too so go ahead tiffany okay well hi um <clears throat> i'm tiffany yecky brooks and i'm an author um my book is gaslighted by god uh, reconstructing a disillusioned faith and um, I write and speak primarily in the in the space of people for people who have undergone spiritual abuse and religious trauma. Um, and you know, myself, I grew up in a um, a fundamentalist church. Lovely people, well-meaning people, but a lot of really deeply broken ideas. A lot of legalism, um, and uh, you have to choke down a lot of cognitive dissonance um, sometimes. And uh, I found myself in at the end of 2009. And then for about the next decade, going through some pretty serious deconstruction, but I didn't have the words for it or the tools. And I didn't really know what I was feeling. I just knew that the theology that I had been taught growing up wasn't right. That my experience with God was different from the God I was told I had to find in the Bible. Um, And so this book um, is basically reaching out to people who find themselves in that same place, who feel um, alienated from the theology in which they were raised, from the churches where they grew up, um, and who don't necessarily want to deconstruct, certainly don't want to walk away from faith or from the church, but are really struggling with this idea of knowing I can't continue in the path that I was brought up on. I can't continue to, to choke down those ideas um, that har- actively harm people. Um, and so this book is, you know, as the as the subtitle it says, it's reconstructing a disillusioned faith. It's for people who have gone through the deconstruction process, or maybe in the middle of it, or maybe just giving just now giving themselves permission to explore it. You know, I say in the book that it's not for people who are asking, "Is it okay to be mad at God?" It's for people who are already there and saying, "So what do I do with that now?" Right. Um, and so the it, it's reframing, rethinking, reconsidering, um, and calling out abusive behaviors, um, misapplication of scripture, um, and basically just everything that goes with spiritual abuse and religious trauma and helping people recover through that and find a way to stay in the church, finding a way to heal, become healthier in their own terms of understanding God and their relationship with what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a person of faith, um, once you've kind of pulled back the curtain 
of especially evangelical Christianity and realize that there are things out there in the way it's um, sometimes packaged or presented in the world um, that are deeply problematic and and harmful. Yeah. And I think what jumped out at me, um, Tiffany, when we talked is you said that you felt like the God that you were given was not the God who you thought it was. And And I think we all go through this stage where we ask these questions, but we're not sure if we're supposed to. We're not sure if we're if if we are allowed to explore faith in a way that is um, is unique and is ours and is um, is. Yeah, just just personal. And so I, I really I really enjoyed our conversation. And I love that you look towards, you know, healthiness, wholeness and happiness. That just to me was those that encapsulates what um, what I most want for want for myself. So Jan, Jan yes. in the studio, how are you? I'm OK. How are you? Good. Jan, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, kind of what what brought us to a great conversation. I've been sitting here trying to remember how our paths cross. And I I don't really recall. Might have been through Facebook. I don't remember. But <laughs> uh, we were dealing with the topic of of trauma. And my story basically did not begin until I was an adult. I had a very stable childhood, happy life. Um my parents were astounding. I was active in baseball and had a good childhood, which thankfully I needed for a foundation because later in July of 85, my husband was missing, which is very unlike him. We've been married 11 years and he didn't come home that night, the next night, the next night, the next night. And ultimately I was called down to the Detroit Homicide Division where they informed me that he was likely murdered, although they didn't have the proof, the DNA proof that they needed at that point because DNA was very different than it is today and they needed a body but stay tuned so I did and uh, a few days later they called me back down and said that I had to go to the morgue to identify him he had unbeknownst to me led a double life for 18 months given away all our money and supported two other people with it bought them drugs paid for their apartment uh paid for their cars and uh, bonuses along the way. I mean, just because they said they needed the money. So he had uh, been beaten to death with a baseball bat. He had been dismembered. His body parts had been thrown all over the freeway. And the identifiable part, which was his head, had been buried. And that was the part that I had to identify. And then became the, the explanation for what in the world happened which I didn't understand for years because it was out of the blue. But ultimately, a newspaper reporter was writing a book, and he was the one that sat down and it really explained to me. The police didn't have time. The year that my husband was murdered in Detroit, there were 790 recorded murders, and a police officer told me it was likely more like 900. But a lot of them just went missing and were presumed dead. So they were too busy to deal with me is my point. Um, I did have to see the two people that were caught in court. They were caught only because they had uh, an uh, informant turn them in. The guy that did most of the killing was so hated in his neighborhood. They had unprecedented cooperation from the police, thank goodness. So I was subpoenaed to go to the preliminary hearing. If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have gone. And that's when 
I had to face them in court. I opted not to go to the trial. Many homicide survivors do, but I opted not to do that because I thought nothing's going to change in my life. And because the prosecuting attorney made it clear to me, this was not my trial. This this trial belonged to the state of Michigan. So I thought, fine, okay, then I'm leaving. And I didn't. I went out of state during the trial. And the press was so unrelentless in their pursuit of me, while they ignored many other people who should have been given some attention, that ultimately I ended up leaving Detroit altogether and did not speak of it for 30 years. Hmm. I, you know, just dealing with the trauma of death, let alone all of those other um, elements of your story is, is pretty overwhelming, but I think your strength in being able to try to help others to walk that path and to have somebody else who knows what that, what that is like to lose a loved one in that way, um, I think is what impressed me the most, Jan, because I just can't imagine those circumstances living through it, let alone helping other people live through it and thrive. So, um, this was what at the top of my list and one of the conversations that I definitely want to touch, but wanted to touch back on. And, um, uh, it looks like you were, Huh. I, I'm not sure when yours was released. <laughs> I'm, my, my, my notes are faulty, but it looks like, oh, 318. It looks like March 18th. You were number 70. So um, if you want to listen to to Jan's story, there's a lot to it. So it's well worth the listen. So Steve Besson. Correct. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Steve is just a great guy. I just hit it off with him, you know, immediately. I hope he feels felt the same. And um, he'd be my he'd be my therapist if or or my drinking buddy if I was in Boston. I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure which. <laughs> I don't drink much anymore, so probably a therapist. <laughs> all right, all right. I take it. Steve, tell us a little bit about how we got connected and, and a little bit about your story. It's funny because I cheated and while everyone was talking, I went to my, to like my email tr- thread and how we met and it was through <laughs> podcast virtuoso okay. and then we exchanged on email and we were connecting instantly so much so that um, Jill came on to my podcast and that was episode 60. And so if you ever want to go listen to that and I thought we, we hit it off, not only there, I was on your podcast, but we hit it off and there's something about chemistry that you can't really explain. Um, and it really like, you know, sometimes people are like, Oh, what made you connect? I don't know. It just connected. Right. And so wanted to give you that, uh, feedback because I, I really, and it was a very popular episode. So thank you for that. But I'm uh, born and raised in Montreal. Um, um, when I was uh, 12 years old, I lost my best friend in a fire and with, uh, the zeitgeist of the times, um, I was told, Well, he played soccer and football with me. He's like, well, he won't be there Saturday, so you better be ready for the game. And that was my grief process. Um, At the time, I was already getting disillusioned from uh, the Catholic Church. And so I ended up uh, drinking silently for during that time um, until I was about 15 or 16 when I had a pretty big breakdown in regards to that. And my fate was pretty rocked at that point. But, you know, one thing I realized is I never want another human being to ever go through what I did alone. So I went into like, I saw therapy and I'm like, Oh, that would be a great thing to help out people. So 
went to McGill, couldn't find a job in Montreal. So I moved down here to, uh, I lived in Natick, Massachusetts for a while um, and got my master's while I was there. And I worked for an agency that made me do, I don't know, I think I calculated the other day, 16 jobs in 15 years. And a lot of the jobs that I did was with first responders and a lot of trauma work, uh, whether it is uh, in the jails, probation, parole. Um, I worked with the police on a co-response model. And what I've learned from there is that not only do we have to treat people with respect who may have a criminal record or may you know, like try to avoid that, number one, but number two, the first responders were the ones who tended to like confide in me that they needed support. And so um, for the last about eight years or so, I worked with mostly first responders, correctional staff, um, and name the department, fire, police, sheriff, EMTs, paramedics. Um, I work with all of them. And for me, it was always very important to kind of like get them to think differently about therapy and engage them. And I, they go from expletives to, to explain why they, where they need to go to therapy to most of them now talking to their friends about their therapy with me also talking about it. Like sometimes they'll like, you can see when you do your social media, they forward your stuff. And I'm like, my God, what, what the hell happened? Um, so, you know, that really helped. And for me, I embraced the mind, body, spirit connection. Uh, I've, uh, I practice Buddhist principles, which made me reaffirm my relationship with pretty much every religion in different ways. Uh, and I want to embrace that spiritual side. So I, I think that was important for me and continuing to do a lot of trauma work specifically with EMDR. And, um, you know, I, I also, you know, it's, it's always like it taken out of context. It's always strange, but I do like working with women who've had trouble with men, particularly with trauma, because then I can't like, they like, Oh, this can work with a man. I say, well, there's probably more than me out there and kind of give them back the faith that they need to have in general. But if it's taken out of context, don't cut that out. It sounds weird when you say, I like working with women. Um, so um, I won't cut it up. Thank you. I appreciate you. But um, so, yeah, and I have my podcast. It came from my book. My book was Finding Your Way Through Therapy. People said, uh, you know, that's a podcast because the chapters were were written in that way. So I've had a podcast for about a year and a half. Like I said, I had Jill on um, episode 60. And, um, and um, you know, I continue working with first responders, doing a lot of trauma work with them. And um, yeah, that's about what my story is. Yeah. Well, Steve, I think one of the things that I loved about you was that, you know, you say embrace your trauma, you can make it through it with some spirituality, but just embrace it. And um, I, I think that's so powerful, because especially when we're dealing with not only trauma, but the shame and the guilt and all of those things that come along with the trauma, we just want it to go away instead of hugging it close and saying, I'm going to figure this out. And uh, that really spoke, spoke volumes to me. So I appreciate you, you being here. Walker, wasn't sure if you were going to be able to make it or not. I wasn't either. I'm so glad to be here. Wow. I love hearing these stories. Yeah. That's so powerful. Great. Great, great people, including yourself. So I'm just having everybody just give a short introduction to um, just kind of their story and kind of how we connected maybe. Okay, great. Well, um, the thing that's so interesting, I just want to comment on really quickly is how synchronistic this is. I'm listening to these stories and I know, right, to really hear it too. It's like, wait a minute, I relate, I relate, I relate. There's elements, you know, where there are no mistakes, right? Yeah, right. 
So my name is Walker Kimberly Brandt, uh, mainly known as Walker Brandt. I've been an actor for 30 years. I've been in blockbuster films, TV shows, uh, thousands of ads. I've done all kinds of stuff. Yes, you've likely seen me, but what nobody knew before 2020 is what I lived through as a child uh, because I kept it hidden for the majority of my career, nearly 30 years. Um, I dealt with it in my, you know, therapy has always been something that I've been a proponent of, but one of the things that got me through the most difficult parts of my childhood, uh, there was a lot of violence, a lot of drugs, alcohol, and uh, my grandfather uh, beat my grandmother to death when I was three. And so that, that trauma within our family put me into a, that part of my experience into a little box that I kept very well hidden. And I kept it, it was between me and God. I went and created a life for myself. I created a lot of success and I created it without letting anyone know about that history until it finally caught up with me inside. Around 2018, something started fracturing. I felt like, okay, this is not going, there's, there is something happening. And I felt a familiar feeling like I felt when I was a little girl when I would go out into nature to talk to God and be with God, I had my own personal, very, very personal relationship and unique relationship with God. My whole childhood from as far back as I can remember, I had my own talks. God was my daddy. That's how I thought about God and um, my spiritual parents. <laughs> um, my mother and father were divorced. My bio dad when I was three and my grandmother was taken out at the same year about six, uh, about six months later. So it was a very traumatic time and there wasn't any availability in my family to deal with it. It was about pushing it away, resisting. And when you resist, as we all know, things persist, but you are, we're, we're survival mechanisms in, in my, you know, the way I look at humanity, we are determined to survive we are determined to make it through. Mm -hmm. Even if we're carrying this large bag of pain and suffering with us, there's something in us that just keeps driving us forward. And that, that was in me from a very young age, but there was like an element of joy in there. There was an element of awareness that there was something in nature that could feed me what I didn't have at home. And mm -hmm. I sought that out really young. And that's, I believe that saved saved me. It really felt, um, I felt love and acceptance there. And yeah. ultimately I feel like that's what we all are looking for. And if you can find that love and acceptance somewhere, um, it will start to lead you to the road on your road of recovery. Yeah. Um, my husband was diagnosed with cancer, uh, and several years before 2019, when this started fracturing and we were in a battle and thank you, Lord, he, he fully has recovered and he has, is cancer free. So thank you. Yes. Uh, we battled it together and it was during that battle that I realized something, something is left in here that I have not, I was like, what's coming up. But I remember that feeling. It's like a, it's like a, a bottle filled with air that's been pushed really, really, really far down. 
underwater and all of a sudden, whatever's holding it looses and it starts flying up. It was that feeling. And it was a residual from losing my grandmother when I was three. It brought up what I had suppressed from such a young age because I, I just couldn't comprehend it. My mother couldn't deal with it. I couldn't process it. So I just encapsulated it until the fear and the thought that is my husband going to, is he, is he going to be here? Is, is he not going to be here? That triggered it. And yeah. so, yeah, at that point, um, something changed. I, you know, I was, I'm still an actor and I was still working, but I knew there was something that I needed to do. I just didn't know what it was. And, uh, I came across some amazing people. I just opened my, my, uh, perspective and said, bring me, bring me to the people I need to talk to that are going to help me, help me figure out what this is. Cause I don't know what it is. I've been an actor for so long and I, I don't know, you know, what else am I supposed to do? And, uh, I came across Lisa Nichols and we uh, connected very deeply. And she said, your story doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the person it can help. And she inspired me to write my book, which is Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence. And that subtitles about what I did as a child is I always went to the light of my innocence, no matter what I was going through that felt like it was taking my innocence. I ran to the light of my innocence. I ran to it in nature. I saw it in other people, even saw it in my parents, even when they couldn't see it in themselves. And I was always the one that was like shining the flashlight up saying, hey, and it, you know, as we all know, when you're suffering, sometimes that can make the people that are struggling the most, the most angry. Right. And yeah, so it was, it was an interesting um, experience, but you know, everything comes around and, and, and finds its way. And I'm happy to say that, you know, my relationship with my family is much, much different now. And I met you, Jill, uh, when I first started, you know, I wrote Awaken, by the way, in 2019, at the end of 2019 and released it in 2020 during COVID. And then I met, uh, I met Jill. Um, I went to grab my mic on the, on this, on this side. (laughs) This is so weird. How does that? So, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you were one of the first podcasters I did an interview with. I had oh, never done, fun. yeah, I had never done this before. So it was like, oh, this is, I've been a spokesperson and I've done all this stuff in front of camera, but I've never done this where I've come out and spoken as me, my story, ask me what you will. And I'll be telling you everything that, you know, that, that is, that is, I've never shared with anyone before. And, um, that's I the think journey. your your authenticity and I mean when Walker talks about you know struggling in life and there were some obstacles and everything I mean there was some stuff and um and she lived through a lot with a lot of determination as a young person and and to me I that resonated with me and I just I just your spirit and your ability to kind of capture the moment and say. I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm going to, we're going to go to the next step. Um, I just really appreciate it. And, and uh, it just has really stuck with me. So um, we have one more Travail's going to talk to us a minute. And then I've got just a few questions. I want to pitch out to all of you and, and see who, who answers first. So um, tell us, sir, how are you? Going great. Thank you so much, Jill. Um, I just first want to just say thank you um, for inviting me and inviting all of these amazing individuals uh, to such a special moment. 
such a special occasion. Um, congratulations to you on this. Um, just very special accomplishment. Um, like, like Walker said, there is such a common thread woven through each of these stories. And um, I'm just so blessed. I'm a little choked up just listening to everyone's story because I mean, this is life, man. We need each other. And um, just this moment of sharing is uh, just so therapeutic, but also so encouraging. Um, so I could just talk forever. So I don't want to go down that path. So let me share, <laughs> let me share a little bit about myself. But I, I love loving on people. I love appreciating people. Um, and that's really my story. I m- my story is one of like I like to say pre and post acceptance. Um, at the age of seven years old, my grandmother and my mother moved us from Chicago, Illinois to Toledo, Ohio. And at the age of seven, um, that's when I lost my father. That's when I began to stutter. That's when I just ballooned up in weight. And I just picked up a lot of extra baggage on my body. And we moved into a neighborhood where it seemed as if I was, I was the neighborhood punching bag, rag doll. I just could not find acceptance anywhere. I was alienated, pushed out, rejected, never accepted. There was always something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I never fed in. I, I I could never fit in, I, sh- I should say. Um, I was either too fat or I stuttered or I didn't have the latest shoes or whatever the kids could find, um, they found. And they made me feel so less than because of it. Things that I couldn't control, things that were outside of my control at such a you know tender age. And as I'm developing and I'm trying to understand who I am and what this thing called life is all about, my mother got addicted to crack cocaine and she also became an alcoholic at that time. Every boyfriend she ever had was an abusive one. I remember nights of being in the next room and just hearing my mother called every name uh, imaginable except her own, leaving that room with black eyes and and busted lips. Um, And so my life was this this environment of chaos, again, with no positive real, no positive male role model uh, to to really confide in or to, to really share my life with. I kept everything inside. And so, you know, as young guys do at some point around the age of 17 or 18, I I personally got addicted to marijuana and to opium, started to run in, in the streets and just do everything imaginable, um, much of which if I, if I was to ever get caught for doing it, I would have been locked up probably for life. Um, but by God's grace, I didn't get caught for many of the things that I did. But the turning point, and not even the turning point, as I look back over my life, the point that I can, you know, pinpoint where I knew I was at my lowest, um, and I believe I shared this on our episode, Jill, was um, I had just purchased a bag of marijuana for about $120. And when I tell my story from stage, I always say I was willing to give my life for $120 um, because after purchasing that bag of weed, I was sitting in the back seat of a car with the windows down. And uh, we were parked in the alleyway and um, I was set up for a robbery. So two gentlemen, one one guy came from the side um, of the window and he put a gun to the side of my head. Another guy came through the front window and he pointed a gun um, at my head and they demanded my weed. It was 
bag of weed. It cost me 120 bucks. And they asked me three times to give to give them what I had. And I won't share exactly what they said, but they said some pretty ugly things. Um, and I told them no three times. And on the third no, they pulled the trigger. The guy with the gun to my head, he pulled the trigger. And I could I can remember to this day just hearing that hammer pull back and that pin dropping in that chamber. But the bullet, the bullet never came out. And I always say to myself, he tried to kill me. He tried to kill me. And that's that's the life that I grew up in, that he was crazy enough to blow my head off for one hundred and twenty dollars. But what what was more important was that I was willing to die sitting in the backseat of a car parked in an alleyway for one hundred and twenty dollars because I was so abused, so mistreated, so rejected in those formative years that I had been convinced that I was worthless. Who was going to miss me if I died? So what if I wasn't here tomorrow? Oh, you cut out there a little bit. We lost your yes, audio. I was already convinced. Okay, am I back now? You're back, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, you know, it's like I'm not even 21 years old and I'm already convinced that my life is worthless. Um, and so, um, you know, two years later, uh, I always share that this is when I did get, get caught uh, for grand theft because um, I continued a life of just recklessness and and, again, doing anything that you can name. Um, and so I found myself on a Sunday morning and I write about that in my book. Um, I, I entitled that, that chapter S O N day, Sunday, the son of God, Christ, um, because on, on that Sunday morning, the, the jail bailiff came down the hall and he, he just kind of put out the ask. He said, Hey, anybody want to go down to this church service? And all I was thinking was, let me get out of this cell block. I didn't know anything about Jesus, didn't want to know anything about God, Jesus, the church, Christianity. None of that was on my mind. All I wanted to do was get out of that jail cell. And um, so it was about a 30 minute, you know, message or, you know, service. So we all went down the hall. We went into this room. And all I remember was some ladies from a local church. They came and they told me about the life of Jesus. And they told me that he accepted me. He, he, he accepted me just as I am, just where I was with all of my issues, with all of my problems. And um, I just remember giving my life uh, to Christ in that moment. And that's where I say pre-acceptance. I lived a life of hell and drama and trauma and just ridiculousness (laughs) to the hundredth degree. But after Christ, um, that's where, again, I think someone mentioned it earlier, you find hope. You find a reason to live. You find that you do belong and that you're not worthless, but that you do have worth. And so, um, you know, long story short, um, after after that, I immediately joined the church, um, began to work towards turning my life around. Um, God showed up in a miraculous way and got me off of those charges. Um, and so I was never sent to prison. I never had to do those 15 years, which I was extremely um you know, fortunate not to, because I had a child on the way, uh, on the way and, uh, God's blessed me with three more since then. Um, but, but yeah, he, he turned everything around from that point. And so I went on to eventually become a, a pastor, um, a teacher, a preacher, um, you know, uh, an author, speaker, a trainer, God's, God's done a lot in my life since then. Um, but it all started with acceptance. It all started with me understanding that I was 
I was accepted and that um that my life did have value and that my life did have worth. I love I love the website that um that Travail has. It's iamthepossible.com. And I think that's just so great. It's it's so him. And if you want somebody inspirational in your life and in your news feeds and all of that, this is your guy because he puts out this stuff. I do listen, I do watch. Um, he puts out this stuff that just is inspirational and aspirational. You're just like, hey, I want to be like him. Oh, I want to do that. I can do it today. So he's <laughs> he's that guy. So, Hey, we have a few minutes left. I just want to give a, um, a, a couple of questions. And if, you know, if, if you have an answer, jump in a couple of you on each question, that would be great. So um, this is a, this is group participation here. So one of the questions I wanted to know is what does safety look like to you? Safety to me is exactly what Shaviel said. It's acceptance. I think that's what makes a child feel safe from day one is knowing that they're accepted and knowing that they're a part of a safe and a, a space that they're accepted and understood no matter what unconditional love is yeah. safety. Somebody else. I think for a lot of people, safety in the church is authenticity. You know, like Sandy, I was just thinking about your story. You shared authentically and you were rejected for it. And that's heartbreaking. Because we have example after example through the Bible, through Christian history of that authenticity is, it's so often discouraged. You know, we think we have to hide it be- behind like churchianity or Christianese and, you know, always tie things up in a, in a red bow and make it look pretty. But when we actually speak authentically and speak to our experience and don't try to explain it away or hide it behind pretty terms and just speak honestly, that's when we relate to people. That's what God is asking from us. Something I say in the book, sorry, is that fault? (laughs) Something I say in the book is that God doesn't need a PR agent. We shouldn't have to lie to be a good Christian. I think think safety also for me means being able to trust my environment, being able to trust the people around me. And that is something that they have to, I have to gain their trust. I don't automatically trust the church. I don't automatically trust people necessarily. And I feel safe when I know that that person can be trusted. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So um, I think I want to do this. I want to ask a question and I want each one of you to, to answer it. Um, I want to know what defines you. It's not your trauma. It's not the events that have happened in your life. It's not, it's not the pain that you've been through. There's something about you that is a definition that um, is separate from all of those things. We are not our trauma. And so I just want to know from, from each of you kind of what, what defines you? Steve, why don't you give it a go? Oh, great. Um, So the first thing that, you know, I'm going to go back to that question and I'm going to say the same thing as how it defines me. It seems counterintuitive, but vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is that when I tell my story, no one can take it away from me. Mm -hmm. And yes, when you have physical safety issues, that's a whole different ballgame. And I get it. And I'm not trying to minimize that. But once, you know, my story is out there and people sometimes wonder, I've been told by my clients, like, I listen to your podcast, you give your story to people. And I'm like, what are you going to do with it? It's my story. You can't take it away from me. And I think that for me, vulnerability is probably one of the things that I like to give as a gift to my clients, to my kids, to people around me, 
because even though it seems counterintuitive, it's the most liberating thing you can do for yourself and for anything else in your life. Great answer. Jan, what defines you? I'm stubborn and determined. Um, (laughs) I don't want anybody to feel isolated from homicide. I don't want anybody to feel dumped by society because of all the stigma that comes with it. I don't want people to feel alone. And I'm determined to do what I can. Having not spoken about it for 30 years, I know what that's what that feels like. Yeah. And so I'm out on a mission to reach as many people as I can to give them a voice, to help them with resources, to let them network with one another, and to show them that they're unwitting experts in this whole thing of surviving death. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Sean, how about you? Wow. Um, good question. If you had uh, asked me back, you know, before I got counseling, before I, you know, found the love of God, I, I would have told you that I'd been taught that, you know, I was basically the, the leftover shell of a kid who was used up years ago and the world defied me. And and that's that's really what I believed. And then I found truth and I found Christ and I found out that I'm defined by the creator of the universe. And his love is, yeah, he met me where I was and he loved me too much to leave me there. And um, I don't let the world set that in my mind any longer. Um, I am, my past is part of my story. Um, but I tell people that is not the end of my story. And if that happened to you, it doesn't have to be the end of yours either. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. Walker, how about you? Oh, you did you already share? Mm-mm. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Um, I've been a seeker of truth my whole, since I think I came out breach. Um, I definitely think seeker and love, um, are how I think of myself. Um, because I, I knew no matter, I did it again. (laughs) I knew I I went to, I went over here. Um, I knew no no matter what I was living through as a child, I knew that that wasn't my only possibility and my only choice. It was, it was instinctual. And that I knew if I couldn't see it there, that I had to step outside and I had to open myself up and not contract. So it was that, that determined, I share with you, Jan, determination, a persistent determination to make the, my life something that wasn't defined by somebody else, but that I could take responsibility for and find joy and, and happiness in, in living from the inside out. Yeah. I think that's, that's that's good. Trivial. Um, my core conviction when it comes to definition of, of myself and really all of humanity is, is contribution. Um, that we are in and of ourselves truly a contribution. Um, I believe that we're not only, you know, created to make a contribution, but to literally be a contribution to the betterment of our society. And for me, it's um, like, I like to say on my podcast, your presence is the greatest present that you could ever give me. And so when I think about contribution, it's whatever God wants to do in that moment whatever he wants to do in that moment. I am his contribution 
moment to moment. And if I define myself by a single thing, and this is my personal conviction, that I may run the chance of not being for you what you need in that moment. And so for me, it's all hats off, all bets off. What, you know, when I show up, it's God, whatever needs to be contributed in that moment um, through me, you know, however you choose, however you will. And um, I am content with that. And I am overjoyed to participate with his greater plan. And the best way I've found to do that is just to show up and let him do whatever he wants to do through me in that moment. And I pray that it would be a, a contribution to the betterment of the individuals that I'm in contact with in that moment. So, yeah, absolutely. I heard a speaker one time um, say that our circumstances can either define us or they can refine us. And that has always stuck with me as one who wants to be refined by the process, refined by my faith, refined by, by, you know, my relationships, not defined by all of those things. And, and so that's, that's part of my quest. That's part of this process is, um, um, is to be a part of the story of telling the story and also to be a part of listening and letting other people tell their stories. So um, I just, I, I just have, go ahead, Sandy. <laughs> Cause I I'm really proud of what I think defines me and that's courage. I spent 27 years fearful that someone would find out about my past. I felt fearful of, what people would think of me being judged. And it took a lot of courage for me to speak because I had an abuser tell me that, you know, no one would believe me that it was going to be, I would be blamed. And in fact, I was blamed when the church discovered his actions. So I always lived with the fear that if people really knew who I was and what I had done, then they wouldn't like me or they wouldn't think of me in the same way. And so even years later, it took courage for me to speak the truth because I feared, you know, and I also feared, what would my husband think if he knew this about me? Even though I knew he would love me unconditionally, that fear kept me silent. And so um, I find by courage and telling my story. Good, 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 good. Well, um, these incredible people here are, oh, Tiffany, go ahead. Can I share mine? Sorry. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm, That's I'm- okay. No, because it's really, it's a combination of what you said and what Sandy said. Um, so for me, it's encouragement um, and not just in the basic sense of, which is important, but to build people up and offer hope. Um, but the encouragement, like the, the word courage being in there, the encouragement to, to actually like inject people with courage, um, to raise your voice, to speak up, to challenge, to call out abuse express your needs, share your story, elevate marginalized voices. You know, I mean, that's what you do, Jill. I think that's what so many people around here do is that actual encouragement um, of actually trying to to promote the development and and foster courage in other people um, to speak up, make themselves heard, advocate for other people, um, and really, really in doing that forward a message of, hope and healing for wholeness. Yes, absolutely. Well, I am honored by your presence and your time. I just want people who have not listened to post-traumatic faith yet to know that 
These, these are some that were the most memorable for me, but there are some incredible guests that have, um, that have been on the show. We've got, um, a Royal Canadian Mounted Police who worked um, for years. We've got marathon runners. We've got, I mean, there's just so many different people who have found a way to make their life meaningful for themselves and for others. So um, if you think about it and you've listened to the podcast, I'd love it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts because that makes me happy and kind of, you know, apparently makes the Apple gods happy. Um, so, um, but <laughs> but friends, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for celebrating this with me. It means the world. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yep. Thank you for having us. Yes. Congratulations. Thank yes. you. Congratulations again. Congratulations. Thank you, everyone, for what you're doing in the world. You all just inspire me and make me want to do even better. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Likewise. You too. Thank yes. you. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.